Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, the lost history of giants in pre-Columbian North America. If you were going to come across the oceans to mine copper, you'd probably bring your biggest, strongest guys. And so, assuming that the Phoenicians would have brought these giants, some of them would have ended up staying, perhaps uh, intermarrying with the natives, and that tribe of giants would have eventually evolved, and that would have been the the tribe that the Native Americans talk about that took over the Ohio River Valley. This episode is brought to you by BrightBiz. If you own a business or you've dreamed of starting one, there's a helpful free guide with 36 business power tools proven to boost sales, increase income, simplify your life, and give you better results with less effort. Best of all, this business toolbox is yours absolutely free. And these are useful online tools that make doing almost anything a lot easier. Just visit freebusinesstoolbox.com to grab your free copy. I know there are a lot of websites who offer you a special deal on something, but then they stick you in one of those recurring programs. How annoying, right? But this isn't like that. There's no hidden thing to try. BrightBiz is giving away this free guide as a means of putting their best foot forward. But all good things must come to an end, so don't wait. Grab your free guide today. Visit freebusinesstoolbox.com. Freebusinesstoolbox.com. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. So one of my boys cut the grass for the very first time yesterday. The back lawn, too. And it's large. And he used uh, our Husqvarna gas mower. He even started it himself. So proud of him. What's the going rate now for someone to cut your grass these days? A big lawn. Maybe a quarter acre. I'm thinking, what, maybe 50 cents? Yeah, that's about right. 
Well, I paid him a dollar. So there you go. I was feeling particularly generous. He's my son. He's worth it. I was just uh, reading this story online about these ancient artifacts found at the bottom of a sinkhole in Florida. And scientists say they found stone knives and other artifacts deep underwater in this sinkhole. And it demonstrates that people lived in that area some 14,500 years ago. That makes this ancient sinkhole the earliest well-documented site for human presence in the southeastern United States. And it's important for understanding the settling of the Americas, experts say. We really know so little about North American history prior to, say, early European settlers in the 15th century. So my guest on this episode is absolutely fascinated by the hidden history of North America and the very real possibility that waves of European explorers visited these shores long before Columbus and the very real possibility that the Phoenicians from modern-day Lebanon may have also visited these shores some 3,000 years ago, bringing with them, wait for it, giants to help mine copper on the shores of Lake Superior. David Brody is a Boston Globe best-selling fiction writer and author of nine novels, a graduate of Tufts University and Georgetown Law School. He's a former director of the New England Antiquities Research Association and is an avid researcher in the subject of pre-Columbian exploration of America. He's frequently appeared as a guest expert on documentaries airing on History Channel, Travel Channel, PBS, and Discovery. All six books in his Templars in America series have been Kindle Top Ten bestsellers. He resides in Westford, Massachusetts with his wife and two daughters. Dave Brody, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? Thank you. Great to be here. Looking forward to it. It's interesting because in some circles, talking about giants is like kissing the third rail, you know, in in, <laughs> in academics. Uh, how did you get interested in, in this? And was there any I- blowback? Yeah, you know, I had that same reaction. I read a magazine article about it, and I was like, what? Come on, that's, that's silliness. But it's funny, that, that it's one of those things, that, and, and I'm a lawyer by trade, so I'm trained to look at evidence. And so, all right, well, I'll look at the evidence. So I started going back through the old newspaper accounts from the 1800s, 1900s. Um, it, it turns out, and a guy named uh, Jim Vieira, who's a Massachusetts native like myself, does a lot of research on this, but he was able to identify over 1,500 newspaper reports from across the country about farmers going out into their fields and digging up you know, mounds or whatever to plant crops and finding these giant human skeletons. Uh, you know, we're, talking, we're not talking fee-fi-fo-fum 20 feet. We're not talking that. We're talking 8, 9, 10, 11, even 12 feet tall human remains. And when you see so many of those time after time after time, at an age before the internet, you start saying, well, geez, there's an awful lot of something going on there. And so I just started digging into it. I, you know, I love obscure little corners of history. I started digging into it. And, you know, like I said, there's just so much there. There, there has to be something going on. And, uh, and my curiosity was peaked and, you know, down that rabbit hole I went. And, and to answer your question, did I get any pushback on it? Yeah, I get people rolling their eyes sometimes. But when I start showing them the old Smithsonian you know, Bureau of Ethnology reports and the old newspaper articles, and you start to say, well, something might have been going on there. Well, so, uh, yeah, I, I was surprised to find myself down that rabbit hole myself. Well, there is a paper trail. That's the interesting thing. When, when archaeologists uncover them, obviously there's r- reporting in the newspapers, but there's also, there seems to be a paper trail, a, a back and forth between museums, curators, and, and people in the field, uh, and yet... 
he says rhetorically, these things don't end up in the museum uh, for the public to see. So therein lies the big conspiracy, I guess. Right. Well, so if there is a conspiracy, the conspiracy is that the, the Smithsonian, you know, wrote about all these, documented all these, and then when it comes time to to find the bones, they're they're missing. You know, it's like the the Raiders of the Last Ark, that final scene. You know, just they're in some bowels of the Smithsonian someplace, and and, and it's gone from history. But yes, like you said, there's a paper trail, and and there's newspaper accounts, there's written accounts from the Smithsonian researchers themselves. There's you know, typically what would happen was a, a farmer would find these bones, and he'd bring in the the judge and the surgeon, and the surgeon would write a report, and the judge would notarize it. And these were upstanding members of the community and and many times these bones were kept in town hall and what would happen is after a period of time they weren't climate controlled they would just turn back to dust you know ashes to ashes dust to dust but like you said a lot of these ended up in the Smithsonian and they seem to just have disappeared and so for those people who like conspiracy theories you know this is sort of fertile ground like why you know what was the Smithsonian trying to cover up what's the, the truth behind these giant skeletons, if any. Um, so it, it is it is fertile ground for that. And where do you think they came from? Are they, did they cross the, the land bridge the, over the Bering Strait with some of the other uh, North American Aboriginal groups, or did they come from Europe? Where do you suppose they came from? Or are we talking about different races of giants? Yeah, so, all right, so it, it could be different. I mean, it could be, the, the Native American legends are that there was a race of giants here in North America, and for a long time, they were very aggressive, and they killed a number of, of Native Americans and, and pushed another, a number of Native American tribes around. We're talking the Ohio River Valley, generally. And then at some point, they were wiped out, okay? So that, so one possibility, like you said, is, is they were, they just, you know, independently existed here in North America. Um, and another possibility, and this is sort of my, my private pet theory, and I can't prove it, but there's a number of accounts of um, Phoenician explorers coming to North America probably 3,000 years ago in that ballpark to get to mine copper that was needed to fuel the Bronze Age. And Phoenicians, the ancient Phoenicians, lived in what we now know as Lebanon. And we, when you think about the accounts in the Bible, in the Old Testament, various accounts about giants they a lot of them lived in the hills and the mountains of lebanon and so again i'm just playing connect the dots and you know sort of putting putting together the pieces in my mind but if you were going to come across the oceans to mine copper you'd probably bring your biggest strongest guys and so assuming that the phoenicians would have brought these giants some of them would have ended up staying because inevitably these operations went on for, for for generations uh, perhaps uh, intermarrying with the natives, and, and, and that tribe of giants would have eventually evolved, and that would have been the, the tribe that the Native Americans talk about that took over the Ohio River Valley. And so that, that's one possibility. That's like, again, playing connected dots. But uh, since we don't have any of the bones to do, do, do DNA testing, we really can't tell. One of the interesting things, you mentioned earlier that these bones have all disappeared, the Native American Grave Repatriation Act, NAGPRA, um, has made it so that anybody who did have any of these giant skeleton bones in a private collection someplace, and we do think there's a number of them out there, it's now a crime for them to, to own those bones, much less display them. So whatever chance we had to examine them and test them, that's pretty much gone because no one wants to go to jail over this. Right. And so, you know, 
20, 30 years ago, I think NAGPRA was back to the 70s, so 40, 50 years ago, it would have been possible to test some of these bones, DNA testing, whatnot. That's not going to happen today, unfortunately. Does that, a, a, a portion of that act, also prevent further excavation of these large earthen mounds? Yes, yes. And so if anything is found, it needs to be repatriated right away. And, you know, that's fine. I think the, 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 the motivation behind that law is, is a fine one. But you run into these sort of, you know, fringe areas where the law is too broad at times and it prevents some, I think, important and serious research from occurring. Um, you know, uh, we've had plenty of examples of that. I don't need to get into that. But, but the idea is it's a, it's a well-intended law, but it has some unintended consequences. Sure. Is, is part of that law, uh, this is, I guess, somewhat politically incorrect, but is it also to, pre- to protect this notion that something that is held by certain indigenous groups or aboriginal groups, that they've always been here, they were here first. And so if you start introducing something else into the narrative, like the fact that some perhaps European group was here 3,000 years before, 4,000 years before Columbus, that kind of muddies the water, maybe undermines some of their claims. Yeah, so I don't think the act was intended for that, but again, this is unintended consequences. Yes, it has become a uh, sort of a, a hammer for um, for groups who are opposed to these fringe areas of history. Uh, the hammer is used against people like myself and other researchers who would like to do some scientific research on some of these artifacts, some of these these bones, um, and, and then try to kick down the door to the possibility that there were other Europeans here before Columbus. So you're right, it has become politicized, it has become... Um, you mentioned politically correct. Um, you know, unfortunately, uh, this 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 area of pre-European history has sort of been uh, co-opted by those people who are, tend to be white supremacists sometimes, and so that whole issue gets involved in it. So it, it, it gets muddier and messier the further along we go with this. And some of us just want to know the truth and really have no political horse in the race. But, it, you know, politics is front and center on a lot of these issues these days, unfortunately. One, one of the other things that I'm wondering is because if you introduce giants into the narrative again, 3,000 years ago, 4,000, 5,000 years ago, uh, that doesn't fit the sort of the Darwinian narrative that, we started smaller and we got bigger as we went along, evolution and and so forth. Is that one of the reasons, perhaps, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> is that one of the reasons that uh, academia or uh, the museums are, are, are threatened by introducing giants into the narrative? I, you know, I don't think so, because I think evolution takes longer than just a few thousand years as we're talking. And when you think about it from an evolutionary point of view, and, and one, of the, one of the reasons why I was receptive to the concept or the possibility of giants is we still have races of pygmies living in you know, Southeast Asia, Africa. They're full size at about three and a half feet. And so when you think about humans being so much significantly smaller than quote-unquote normal humans, why can't the opposite also exist, which is humans being significantly taller and larger than quote-unquote normal humans. I mean, why can't it exist? If it's a bell curve, we should have an occasional example of races of giants, just like we have occasional examples 
of races of pygmies. It just sort of balances out. I mean, nature nature likes balance. Nature likes, uh, you know, uh, that, that doesn't like one extreme over another. And so um, when you think of it that way, it would almost makes it would be surprising if we didn't have a race of overly tall humans, just like we have overly short ones. Uh, as best as you can piece together from the early the, the written accounts and newspapers, what did these giants look like? Uh, you know, was did they have greater bone density? What about the, right. the crania? Yeah. So, so one of the really important clues in all this, and and. I had a law professor back when I was in law school at Georgetown, and, and he said, uh, only the worst lawyers forget that the most important tool in their bag is common sense. And so, you know, that's always stuck with me. And, and one of the, the, the glaring examples of that is that many of these newspaper accounts, again, I mentioned there are about 1,500 of them. So I'm not going to say a majority of them, but a significant number of them, many, many, many of them, many dozens of them, talked about how these giant skeletons that they found had double rows of teeth, something called hyperdontia. So this is before the age of the Internet. Um, you know, Richard, you're living in Toronto. You find a giant out in your backyard, and you write about it and, and tell the newspaper, uh, local newspaper about it. And they write about it, and it turns out they write about it has double rows of teeth. Well, I'm in Boston, and, and it's 100 years ago, 200 years ago, and I find a skeleton in my backyard, and sure enough, it has double rows of teeth. And, and we find these double rows of teeth all over North America. Well, that's something that just can't happen by coincidence before the age of the Internet. Right, it right. Just doesn't, the world didn't work that way back then. And so these are sort of corroborating pieces of evidence that something is going on, not just giants, but they all seem to have this genetic mutation or genetic um, uh, evolution, it could be, but they all seem to have these double rows of teeth. And so, that, so that's one thing. Oftentimes there's a six-digit, but that's not as common as the double rows of teeth. Um, but, but again, it's one of those things that, you know, you start looking at the evidence and say, wow, you know, is it possible that everyone made this up simultaneously or independently? And no, not really. What about accounts of uh, red hair? I've seen some of that, but not as much. You know, I, I, I've seen that... Um, most of these skeletons, uh, by the time they were uh, uncovered, didn't have hair. I have seen some accounts of red hair, but not enough to really, I think, draw any conclusions from. Uh, the the Phoenicians uh, that you mentioned, uh, yeah. these, I, I want to get back to that massive copper mine operation on the shores of Lake Superior. How long ago, right. was that 3,000, 4,000 years ago? Right, so there was a fascinating shipwreck discovery, uh, I think it was called the Uluburu shipwreck off the coast of Turkey, and they, and they were identified, they were able to identify that the, the copper from that shipwreck uh, was from the Lake Michigan area, Lake Superior, Lake Michigan area, just because of its, of its density and its other metallurgic qualities. Uh, but that goes back about 3,000 years. And so the, the intersection point for all of these things, as, as, I, as I look at them, um, is a you know, if you talk about the age of the burial mounds, the age of when the, the Phoenicians would have been here. Of course, it, it, once we get to the uh, past the Bronze Age into the Iron Age, there's no longer any reason to come over to North America to get copper. You know, you know, don't need it anymore. But it seems to be right around. Oh, and evidence at a, at a site up in, in New Hampshire called America Stonehenge. You know, the evidence yes. up there. Yes. Uh, and I believe that you've spoken about that on your show before. I have. All these intersection points. It's right around 700 to 800. 
BC. It's in that range 2,500, 3,000 years ago. That seems to be the intersection point, the Adena culture burial mounds, the Bronze Age, the Phoenician exploration, the America Stonehenge evidence. That seems to be the age we're talking. So uh, as the editor of Ancient America once said, Columbus wasn't first, he was probably last. <laughs> late to the party. Yes, yeah, I was well, late to the party. He was, uh, and, he, and, and, and the irony, of course, is he had never even made it to North America. He was only in, you know, Cuba or whatever. Right, but right. Yeah, he never, um, and so I, I think the Phoenicians were probably first. There, there's definitely evidence in the Great Lakes area of some kind of mining operation going back over 3,000 years ago. And again, the shipwreck off of Turkey, showing that the copper in that shipwreck uh, looks like it came from Lake Michigan area. Um, the Native Americans, you know, we, we need to do a better job listening to the Native Americans. They were here. And for some reason, because they didn't write down their history, they have an oral history tradition rather than a written history tradition, we don't listen to them. Oh, if you, if, you know, if you, if you didn't write it down, it can't be valid. You know, as if all of our written history is valid, but that's beside the point. But they have a, a rich oral history tradition. They pass it down. It's important to them. It's, it's not, uh, not any less accurate than written history, but they talk about, uh, you know, people coming across what they call the Sunrise Sea, the Atlantic Ocean, thousands of years ago to mine the float copper out of the, out of the Great Lakes area. And they talk about that very matter-of-factly. And when the pioneers first arrived in that area in the 1800s, they noticed that some kind of mining operation had been going on, and they asked about it, and that was the answer they received. So when you think about that, we know the Phoenicians went as far uh, north as the southern coast of Great Britain to get tin from Cornwall. You needed tin and copper to make bronze. And we also, experts tell us, there wasn't enough copper in Europe and Africa at the time to account for all the gazillions of tons of bronze that was produced. You know, they had to have some other source of copper. Uh, and we know the Great Lakes was very rich in it, and we know it was taken by somebody. Do you do you suppose the the giants were were slaves, or were they willing participants in this mining operation? I'm guessing willing. When we read about the account of the, of the giants in the Bible, you know, they're, they're they're kings. They're 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 the most powerful warriors. They're the leaders of society. My guess is that they were uh, leaders of the expedition. Uh, you know, leaders, especially back then when physical prowess was so important that I, I had trouble believing they'd be enslaved. Um, one of the burial mounds that we we know about in um, I believe South Carolina called the the Grave Creek uh, burial mound. Um, is written in a, in a Phoenician script, and it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, translated as a burial mound in honor of King Tosfesh. His queen caused this tablet to be inscribed. Now he's only seven and a half feet. He's 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 not as big as some of the other giants that we found, but other other giants in nearby mounds were were eight and nine or even ten feet. But there is a specific burial mound with a, a king, again not a slave, a king. Um, written in a Phoenician script. So that makes me believe that they were probably the leaders uh, of society, not, not enslaved. So this neighbor down the street has a giant 
Schnauzer. And uh, this dog runs the house, apparently. I see him taking them out for a walk every morning. He thinks he's in charge. Nice dog, but this is not a good situation. I'd love to put these nice people in touch with Adrian Ferricelli. She's a certified dog trainer, and she's helped hundreds of dog owners train their dogs to be well-behaved, obedient, loving pets by bringing out their hidden intelligence. You can quickly eliminate any behavioral problem your dog has, no matter how badly you think it's ingrained, and no matter what kind of dog you have, even giant schnauzers. The science behind this is simple. You may have heard of neuroplasticity in the human brain. That's what allows our brains to learn new behaviors. Well, your dog's brain has this same plasticity, and with the right mental stimulation that Adrian teaches, any dog's brain will become more open and receptive to learning new information. Your dog will listen to you and understand what you wanted to do. And when this happens, bad behaviors simply fade away as more desirable ones appear in their place. So, if you want to check out this remarkable dog training system, just visit realbusinessbargains.com. That's realbusinessbargains.com. realbusinessbargains.com. As you're staring up at the night sky, ever wonder who's staring back? No, neither. But I guess you better say it because of Richard, you know, he's all wrapped up in this stuff. <laughs> Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. David Brody, the author of The Oath of Nimrod, Giants, MK Ultra, and the Smithsonian cover-up is here. Based on the number of mounds, uh, and I mean, some mounds would have obviously more, <clears throat> they would have, <clears throat> my understanding is layers and, and uh, multiple families would be buried there any idea what kind of a population was roaming around north america in, in terms of giants interesting question i want to make a correction a grave creek burial mountains in west virginia not south carolina by the way i should have known that um as far as population goes there's really no because because only the cream of the crop only the 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 most important people were, were buried in these mounds and so you know you're talking just a small sample and so many of the mounds have been plowed over, lost to development. Um, we we do know that some of these some of these Native American sites, and we're sort of switching into from from giants and Native American sites here. But indulge me for a second. For example, the the the, the mounds in Cahokia uh, in East St. Louis, uh, which the Cahokia civilization wiped out around the mid 1300s. But that settlement was bigger at the time than either Paris or London. There were you know, hundreds of thousands of people in that area at the time, a thriving civilization. And so the idea that the Native Americans were uncivilized and you know, sort of running around in the woods before the Europeans came, that's simply not true. They had some really intricate, really elaborate societies and, 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 and trading patterns and technology that existed even back then. So these giants from Phoenicia came over and I guess what, stayed, intermarried, intermingled with uh, other populations and uh, eventually died out. Is that the idea? Right. So, so, you know, so that's a theory. So again, I, I'm, this, is, this is me playing, you know, connect the dots, looking at the various pieces of evidence and trying to, trying to cobble together a story that makes sense. But if they did come over, and again, when they came over, it wasn't you know it wasn't like they came over for you know two week vacation. If you come over, if you're coming from Lebanon, you know through the Mediterranean across the North Atlantic and all the way across the Great Lakes you know, into into the Lake Superior and Lake Michigan area, it's a long journey. You're going to probably stay for a number of years, and probably a lot of them would have ended up staying 
Um, obviously, they would have taken wives. Obviously, they would have had children. Uh, obviously, they would have stuck together for a long time. And at some point, I, th- I think that's the eventual tribe of what the Native Americans call the, the giants in the Ohio River Valley, who eventually made war on a number of the tribes and pushed a number of them out of that area uh, for 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 what seemed like hundreds of years until uh, eventually they themselves were, were, were wiped out. And I think that's why we see so many of these uh, these these skeletons in these burial mounds, and they're, they're clustered in the Ohio River Valley. Now, we have them all across you know, the country, even as far as the West Coast, but mostly we're talking the Ohio River Valley. That's the major cluster of them. Where is Ancestry.com? <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Where is Ancestry.com in all this? I mean, that would be fascinating uh, to, to determine whether certain populations in North America have Phoenician blood or Phoenician DNA. Uh, that, that is fascinating. That would be fascinating. Um, what would be ideal, we talked about this earlier, was if we could find, if we get uh, some of these skeleton bones today and, and test them, um, that, that would answer so many questions. But you're going at it a different way with that suggestion, and that's a, that's a good one as well. I wonder, we have uh, different Native American tribes doing testing. There's a, an offshoot of the, of the main Cherokee branch, uh, and I believe they're in um, Tennessee, I believe, North Carolina perhaps, uh, and they have done DNA testing, and, and they actually believe that they descend from uh, the tribes of Israel. They, they, they have actually changed their tribal flag so it now has a Jewish star on it. Because oh, that's they've done, fascinating. They've done DNA testing. And they believe that they, you know, they come down from whether they're one of the lost tribes or whether it's a, uh, a group of uh, Israelites exploring across the ocean. Who knows? But they, and their whole history has always been that they came from across the Atlantic, not from across the Bering Land Strait. And so they, you know, they've done some DNA testing and it traces back to the Middle East. And so there are pieces of evidence that tie different cultures back to the Middle East, but it hasn't developed enough so you can really pinpoint exactly when and exactly where. Uh, but, you know, that, that's, that's the type of thing. When you think about 10 years ago where we were on DNA testing as compared to where we are today and then project 10 years forward, you know, we might be having the same conversation 10 years from now, Richard, and we know exactly what happened with all these things right. because of DNA testing has evolved right. so much. I, I, I remember a pic- you want to book me for 10 years from now, I'll promise you to come back. Okay, it's done. It it's done. You're in my Google calendar. Uh, there you go. There was a pitcher with the Florida Marlins. I think his last name was Alfonseca. And he was okay. a tall fellow, and he had six digits on each hand and did he really yeah wow uh, and there was a big that debate exactly there was a big debate as to whether that that actually you know uh helped, gave him an advantage but interesting i mean and you said you said he was tall was he like you know six six or we thought six ten or he couldn't have been that tall we would have heard about yeah i can't you know, randy johnson or something no he wasn't randy johnson territory but he was certainly six five six six he was a big Healthy lad, to be sure. Wow, interesting. So, tell me about the Oath of Nimrod. I love, you know, I'm a big fan of historical fiction. Uh, this is kind of, I mean, what do you call this genre where you take actual archaeological finds and uh, geographical locations, and then you interweave these fictional characters? Is there a name for this right. genre? 
You know, you know, no, I, because then I, it's funny because they always ask me to check the box when I'm, you know, is it, is it historical fiction? Is it thriller? Is it action and adventure? It's all those things. But you're right, it's, it's almost a new genre because it's similar a little bit to the formula of like National Treasure mm. or Da Vinci Code in the sense it's modern day, we have, but we have characters looking at ancient history and trying to put together the puzzle in modern times to figure out what happened back then and how does it affect what's going on today. So yeah, so uh, you know, I didn't I didn't set out. I've written seven of these of these novels. I didn't set out to to do that. I just sort of started looking at some of these these legends and trying to determine whether they're true or not. And and the digger uh, the deeper I dug, pardon me, the more I found what I consider to be compelling evidence. So in this case, one of the one of the really interesting tie-ins is that the Freemasons, and, and they seem to be at the bottom of every rabbit hole I dive down. I'm, I'm not a Freemason myself, but, but I, I do end up writing about them a lot. But um, the title of my book is called The Oath of Nimrod, and that, that comes from the, the, the Masonic Initiation Pledge. And I'll, If you don't mind, I'll read it. Can I read it? Yes, it's only three sentences long. This is, so this is what new initiates have to pledge. This is more in Europe than it is in America today. It used to be nation, uh, worldwide. And the American one has changed a little bit, but it, this is more prevalent in Europe. But I quote, I promise I will not at any time reveal any of the secrets of Freemasonry. The penalty for breaking this great oath shall be the loss of my life. I shall be branded with the mark of the traitor and slain according to ancient custom by being throttled. My body shall be buried in the rough sands of the sea where the tide regularly ebbs and flows so that my soul shall have no rest by day or by night. Okay, so that's basically what you swear to when you join Freemasonry, but it's called the Oath of Nimrod. Ah. Now, Nimrod, we think of today in terms of someone who's being a, a doofus or an idiot, but Nimrod was the ancient biblical character who built the Tower of Babel. Right. He essentially was a, a Phoenician god, okay, sorry, Phoenician king. Mm-hmm. He worshipped the sun god Baal, at a time when Abraham was trying to get people to worship Yahweh. And so there was a rivalry between Abraham and Yahweh on the one hand, and Nimrod and Baal on the other, and Nimrod said, well, I'll show you which god is stronger. I'm going to build this tower, and Baal's going to protect me. And Abraham said, no, he's not. Yahweh's going to knock it down. Well, the Old Testament tells us what happened, and Yahweh knocked it down. And so eventually Abraham uh, prevailed, and most people in the Middle East began to worship Yahweh, and Baal sort of fell by the side a little bit. Still, some, some people worshipped him, the sun god, but mostly it was Yahweh. But the interesting thing is that the Nimrod, who was this sun worshipper, this, this worshipper of Baal, ends up being an icon in Freemasonry. In fact, the Freemason encyclopedias I've read refer to Nimrod as being the first Grand Master of Freemasonry. Mm. It's a very strange thing for a group that is supposedly, you know, Judeo-Christian in its in its origin. Well, so they say. So, yeah, so they say. They say, yeah. So, and, and I'm not one of those people who, you know, conspiracy theories against the Freemasons. I think what they do is great work. I, I, I have a ton of respect for what they do, and most of them don't even know about this Nimrod connection, or that Nimrod was the first Grand Master, or that, you know, they had that this that the oath they they take used to be called the Oath of Nimrod, but it's just. It's just an interesting tie-in, and, and, I, and it sort of, again, ties back to this whole idea of, um, you know, the fact that Nimrod himself was a giant, and that he himself was Phoenician. And there's been a long-standing, interesting tie-in between the Phoenicians and the Knights Templar, and, of course, the Templars, and the Freemasons. So, 
Again, I'm sort of playing connect the dots between all these things, and some interesting connections are, are made. Right, and you even throw in, of course, the, the Giants, but also you throw in MK Ultra. Uh, how does that fit in? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this ticks all the boxes for me. I got to tell you, MK Ultra Giants, well, I'm so, sold. So, so funny story. So, I'm a graduate of Tufts University here in uh, in the Greater Boston area, and my daughter. Uh, this is when I wrote this book. So, my daughter is now out of Tufts, but she went to Tufts, and, and when she was a freshman, she lived in a dormitory called Carmichael. And I had known that Carmichael was named after an ex-president of Tufts named Leonard Carmichael. And I don't know what maybe start to think about, but she was going to move in. I was going to do you know, something fun for her. And I started looking up what Carmichael, who he was. And it turns out he was a behavioral psychologist when he was at Tufts, uh, before he was at Tufts. But then later on, he was one of the founding members of MK Ultra. Uh-huh. Like, oh, what's going on with that? And so I started, like, so sort of, again, looking, looking at possible connections. And for, for your listeners who may not know, MKUltra is a sort of mind control project that the U.S. intelligence community was trying to develop after World War II as a way to defeat the communists. And they were, they were doing experiments on people like Ted Kaczynski and Sirhan Sirhan and Whitey Bulger and some really nasty stuff they were doing. But they were trying to figure out a way to win the mind control game. And it turns out that this guy, Carmichael, who was the president of Tufts, and my daughter's dorm was named after, was one of the, was one of the founders of MKUltra because he was a behavioral psychologist. But he also was the head of the Smithsonian Institute. And so I started thinking, well, if this guy's in control, in control of the Smithsonian, and he's also behind the whole mind control game, I wonder if the Smithsonian is somehow using these artifacts for mind control, if there's a way to sort of alter history for some kind of you know, psychological reason. And, you know, probably not, but it was just a fun thing to explore in the novel. Well, it's uh, it's called The Oath of Nimrod, Giants, MK Ultra, and the Smithsonian Cover-Up. Uh, right. You mentioned the Templars, and yeah. you had this the whole series about the, the, um, the North American Templars. Uh, what do you think is the connection between the the North American Templars and what we think of as you know the the Crusaders and those that were guarding the the the, uh, the path the, to the uh, the Holy Land and so forth during the Middle Ages. Right. So 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 in, when when I when we refer to the North American Templars, I think that it, we're talking about the same people. I think what happened was during medieval times, as the Templars, even before they were outlawed, but especially after they were outlawed in the early 1300s by by the King of France and the Pope, I think they came over here. Uh, they saw North America as a safe haven. And, and the first book I wrote in the series uh, essentially talks about the, the 14th century journey uh, by Prince Henry Sinclair, whose family built Roslyn Chapel later on, and who was uh, closely allied with the Templars and the Freemasons. But I, I think what was happening was in medieval times, the Templars were coming back and forth across to North America, perhaps following old Phoenician maps that they, that they acquired when they were in the Middle East and befriended by the Christian Lebanese, the descendants of the Phoenicians, by the way. But I think that they were coming back and forth to North America, and we have artifacts that show that, uh, knowing that at some point the church was going to turn on them, and they wanted to have a safe haven, a place to hide their treasures, a place to eventually uh, flee to if necessary and reconstitute themselves um, you know, far, far, from the, far from the Vatican, far from the church, far from the armies of the church. Do you think that it's Templar treasure buried in Oak Island? Uh, either either on or near, and, and perhaps the verb tense I might want to dispute. At some point there was. I'm not convinced it's still there, but I do think that um, 
that would have been a natural landing point as they came across the North Atlantic. Remember, we know the Vikings had done this journey in, in the 11th century many times, back and forth. And Prince Henry Sinclair, who I mentioned, uh, uh, himself was uh, on his mother's side, was Norse, and ruled the Orkney Islands, which is on the path coming from Norway across to Iceland and Greenland and eventually to North America. And so he would have known the path that he would have had old maps and charts and oral history. Um, so, I, I, so I, yes, I think that, that they would have come across the North Atlantic, just as the Vikings did, and a, a natural landing spot for that journey is the eastern coast of Nova Scotia, which, of course, is where Oak Island is. And so that would have made a natural spot to land. Um, perhaps they, they, they left treasure there and retrieved it later at a later time and moved it further inland, or perhaps they did indeed leave it on Oak Island to be found, you know, maybe by the Lagina brothers on Curse of Oak Island. Maybe, maybe it's long gone. I don't know. I don't have any particular knowledge of that. But um, I do believe that there is a Templar treasure that was brought here, and then we have to decide, you know, what does that mean, the Templar treasure? Are we talking uh, religious artifacts like the Holy Grail or the Ark of the Covenant? Are we talking, you know, gold and silver? Are we talking religious scrolls that maybe talk about the true origins of Christianity and true early beliefs of Christianity? Are we talking about other ancient knowledge that might have been lost at Alexandria? Are we talking... Um, you know, there's a number of different things it could be, which, you know, but what, what is it? I don't know, but I do believe that they did bring some kind of quote unquote treasure across the Atlantic. You know, the whole pre-Columbian history of North America, which is being suppressed, is so rich and so fascinating. And it's, it's really a, a shame that, um, you know, this isn't being taught in schools. What do you think is, what is it going to take? For, for this information to finally break through and be accepted? It, it's going to take one really large piece of evidence. Like the, the Lonsell Meadows find in the late 1960s is what finally gave the, the Viking journeys um, you know, legitimacy. There was no longer any doubt because we had an archaeological site that proved the Vikings were here. So we need something like that. We, we have, you know, I could probably list 15 or 20 solid pieces of evidence, artifacts and sites in and around New England that evidence pre-Columbus exploration of America. But not any one of them is like, is like the home run. You know, it's like, you know, it's death from a thousand small cuts. So I got 15 or 20 small cuts. I just don't have the, I don't have the knife to the heart. I don't have the dagger in the eye yet that we need. And so we just need that one thing. We're close on some things. There's some, there's some really compelling evidence that, at a tower in Rhode Island called the Newport Tower, and Scott Walter's done some great work on the Kensington Runestone, and there's uh, other artifacts around that are, that are really compelling. But I think we just need that one, that knockout punch that really just takes away any doubt. But having said that, you know, I've been doing this for about 12 years now, and I've seen a huge change in the number of people who are willing to accept this possibility and you know, TV shows and documentaries and radio shows like yourself, and more and more people are open to this possibility where they weren't open to it a decade ago. David, I have so enjoyed I've enjoyed speaking with you immensely. Uh, the The website is davidbrodybooks.com, David Brody, B-R-O-D-Y, davidbrodybooks.com. Uh, the new one is The Oath of Nimrod, Giants, MKUltra, and the Smithsonian Cover-Up. 
And uh, who knows, maybe coming to a movie theater near you. This has uh, Hollywood, <laughs> Hollywood written great. all over it. Excellent. Richard, thank you so much. I really enjoyed our talk. My pleasure. Again sometime. Thank, thank you. you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Great job, Dave. Now, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'm going to let you in on what's in store next time on Conspiracy Unlimited. Before that, I want to let you in on another great secret, Life Extension's Mega Green Tea Extract, and how it provides powerful antioxidant effects throughout the body. Green tea contains health-promoting polyphenols, including a powerful antioxidant which has been the subject of extensive scientific research. Why don't you pour on these multiple health benefits for yourself? Green tea is a powerful antioxidant. It supports cell membrane integrity. It boosts liver detoxification. It enhances immune function and helps maintain healthy blood cholesterol, LDL and triglyceride levels, and much more. Life Extension's Mega Green Tea Extract is decaffeinated, and yet it contains more polyphenols in one capsule than seven cups of green tea. The Chinese have used green tea for therapeutic purposes since 2000 BC, and more recently, volumes of published scientific findings attest to its multiple health benefits. One capsule a day of Mega Green Tea Extract is all you need. Why don't you give your body what it needs? Order right now from Life Extension and save 25%. Just go to smartclickidea.com. That's smartclickidea.com. Smartclickidea.com. Coming up next time, a former correctional officer in the Kentucky Penitentiary shares his paranormal encounters along the corridors of the Green Mile and the Execution Chamber. Until next time, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. 